And once again, would you join with me in a word of prayer? And gracious Heavenly Father, as, as we come into this place, we, 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 we realize the, the, the great lengths that you have gone to to seek out this moment and this time and this place and us. And Lord, in obedience to your claim in our lives, I pray that our hearts might be opened by your spirit so that we might be found by you. And then in the finding, Lord, that we might discover greater reason to love you and and to serve you and to find the joy of the life you have meant us to live for. You have created us for yourself and for your purposes. And Lord, in that, we have a desire to be the man or the woman that you've meant us to be from the beginning of time. And so in obedience, Lord, we open your word. And Lord, in obedience, we prepare to give our hearts to you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This morning, as we return to the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to continue to look closely at Jesus Christ, knowing that, as we read in the Gospel of John, whoever sees him, Jesus, has seen the Father. After all, as the Apostle Paul has written, he says, Jesus is the perfect reflection of God, our Heavenly Father. And if you want to know anything about the character of God, all you have to do is look very closely at Jesus Christ, which, to be totally honest, maybe may not be an easy thing to do, given all the images that have grown up around him over the centuries. Sometimes you have to dig deep in order to get back into the gospel and get a clear picture. I love the way Becky Pipper put it in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. She says this, if someone had asked me as an agnostic several years ago to describe what I thought Jesus was like, I would have readily given an answer. I pictured him as a sweet, kind man, his hair parted down the middle in kind of a prel halo shampoo effect. I I thought he probably spent most of his time skipping along the shores of Galilee, humming religious tunes with his disciples, the kind of person everyone would love, especially your mother. I sincerely believed this and did not think it at least bit irreverent in thinking so. And then one day I looked at the New Testament and instead of a meek, mild Jesus, I found a man of profound passion. An extraordinary being flinging down furniture down the front steps of the temple, causing, uh, casting out demons and asking people how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. A man of profound passion. That's Jesus the Word of God come into the flesh to dwell among us. He is alive and He is lively. G.K. Chesterton picked up on the passion of Jesus Christ when he wrote this. I love this phrase. What people write about Him has been, and perhaps wisely, sweet and submissive. But the dictation used by Jesus is quite and curiously gigantic. It is full of camels leaping through needles and mountains being hurled into the sea. His furious style of saying how much more piles greater truth upon truth like castles upon castles in the clouds. Whatever one may say, having gotten even a glimpse of Jesus, you could never, never again say with casual indifference, oh, how interesting he might be. (laughs) He is a man of profound passion. 
Let there be no doubt about it. What you see in Jesus reveals then, even more than that, it reveals the profound passion that, that rests in the heart of God. And it is a passion with a purpose. You simply can't read very far in the gospel without realizing that when Jesus looked at the crowds, he was moved by, and here's the word, compassion. In Matthew's gospel, when he saw the crowd, it says he had compassion upon them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Someone has said, compassion is your pain in my heart. And most of us live lives not of compassion, we actually live lives more of compulsion. Having to reach out to others because we have to. And there's a huge difference. Compassion is just the opposite of compulsion. It reaches out because you are moved to respond. The pain of another is in your heart. And whatever it is, that pain, hunger, loneliness, grief, loss, aimlessness, lostness, when Jesus looks at you, you touch his heart and elicit from him a mission from God. It says he had compassion upon them. (laughs) You might take that personally. He has compassion upon you as well. Pause for just a moment. Do you realize that God has a passion for you? Even more, do you realize that you are a cause for joy in his heart? Human beings do matter to God, and lost human beings move him into action, which is why we read that set phrase for the entire Gospel of Luke. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, you and me. So it's no wonder that when we come to Luke 15, we find him surrounded by a crowd that is described as, we read that earlier, sinners and tax collectors. There was something about them, about their lostness, that drew Jesus to them. It drew him to them. And there was something about Jesus that was drawn with a mission. There's a mutual attraction that is taking place here. This is something you might call love. It is a fixed universal law, and it is as active today as it ever was. There is something about you and me that draws Jesus to us. It is called love. It is called grace. And I don't understand it any more than I understand the laws of physics. I have no idea why he would love me, only that he does. It's a fixed spiritual law, and it is welded then to a second spiritual law. There is something about Jesus that continues to draw us to him. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all mankind unto myself. You thought you were just coming to church this morning. There is a fixed law in the universe that draws you to Jesus Christ. And that word draw speaks of a heartfelt attraction a soul-felt magnetic force that somehow moves us to search out Jesus, an intuitive sense that says, look, my, my pain has found a place in his heart. I must get nearer. And it's around this sense of mutual attraction, his seeking and our being found, that Jesus then tells this story in chapter 15 that reveals the heart of God. His heart for the lost, his heart for you, his heart for me, and it is a heart of passion. 
Now, we, we looked at the first of stories that are told in chapter 15 last week, the searching shepherd seeking the lost sheep. And in many ways, that, that story was prompted by a bunch of grumbling Pharisees who were wondering what business it was of Jesus to hang out with such losers as the tax collectors and the sinners. And that story of the shepherd was largely directed at them because seeking the lost was his primary mission and something he cared about deeply. And no doubt about it, the Pharisees were lost, lost and lost. And they were in his crosshairs as much as any of the rest of the sinners that had come. But while in that first story he may have been talking directly to the Pharisees, the fact remained that he was also at that moment surrounded by all the rest. And I cannot help but think that right away on the heels of that story of the shepherd, he then turns to the entire crowd and without a pause tells another story. And you'll find it right here. It begins in Luke chapter 15, verse 8. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she she not light a lamp and sweep the house and carefully search until she finds it? Now, now this is a parable which means that there are going to be symbols within it that help us understand something greater. But the the symbols are familiar enough that it's pretty easy for us to be able to get the point. So, considering the crowd around him, who does the coin represent? The lost. Okay, I'll give the answers for you, okay. And, and then, who does the coin's owner represent? Who does the old lady represent? Jesus, right? So if you make that connection, you get a good idea of what Jesus thinks of you. Let me take it one step further. By describing you as a coin, Jesus is obviously saying something very special about you. You are worth something, <laughs> Which, when you're lost, is a pretty remarkable thing, isn't it? When you're lost, you wonder if your life has any meaning, if there's anything really special about you. No matter how hard you try to build up feelings of self-worth, there is still that kind gnawing sense that, that it doesn't add up to much. But here, Jesus says, no, 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 no. You have certain intrinsic value in your being. You are like a coin, he starts with. Which may lead you to wonder, what type of coin am I? A penny? Well, maybe more than that since Canada dropped the penny this year. How about a nickel? Am I worth a nickel? Maybe a quarter, maybe a loony. Dare I think I'm a toonie? In a gentle way, you might read this and get the idea that with you, Jesus is dealing with chump change. Au contraire, mon frere. The word he uses here is a silver coin. And it's the word drachma. And the face value, according to some authorities, was in the range of almost one full day's wage. Which then may make you think to yourself, okay, I've got a little bit more worth than I thought. I'm worth at least a day out of Jesus' busy schedule, aren't I? Au contraire, it gets even better. In the story, Jesus specifically identifies himself as this woman with ten coins. And and you have to understand the the culture of the day. It would have painted a very specific picture. You see, in that day, a woman would take coins like this drachma. It had a little hole in it. And then they would wear them as a necklace to display what we would probably call a dowry. 
a wedding necklace, something like a hope chest. And the coins, as they were laced together, were more than just chump change. They symbolized all of the dreams and hopes and desires that a person carried into life. And together, the coins would sparkle with pride and joy and with future and with life. It was their supreme value, their worth that they would carry on their neck. And and if you carry that image to, to, to heart, what you discover is that when you were created, your life was strung in such a way that everything about you, your hopes, your dreams, your potential, your future, would be strung like a precious necklace and then would lie right across the heart of your creator. Isn't that a beautiful picture? But look at the story. Something's happened. The string has snapped, and, and, the, and the coins have dropped, and, and one has disappeared. And so the search is on. Now, I could get real poetic here with this imagery, but I think you get the point. To realize that in this image, you were made for God, and you were designed to be strung across his heart, but sin has somehow snapped that connection, and it has now left you with that famous God-shaped void and that hole in your life, leaving you wandering and disconnected so that your hopes and your dreams are all scattered and shattered and somehow disappeared. When Jesus comes, he's on a search. Look at the search. It says here she turns on all the lights, she sweeps the house, she turns it upside down, she searches, as it says in the New International Version, carefully, diligently, doggedly, never resting until it is to be found. Last week I asked if if anyone knows what it's like to have lost something very special, keys, glasses, wallets, rings sometimes. And I ask you to remember what you were like whenever you lost something very special, how frantic and obsessed, even creative you might have gotten until you found that treasured object. Years ago when I was pastor at the Bethany Baptist Church, I was going to preach on Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, which is a similar parable of a treasure that is hidden in a field. And I decided to add a little bit of punch to my sermon. So I I, I went out that week to a dollar store and I bought a packet of kitty jewels, little plastic rings, you know, that kind of sparkle and shine. And uh, and, and early in the morning, on that Sunday morning, I I, I came to church and I, I crawled under the pews and I randomly taped these little rings to the bottom of the pews. And so in the sermon, I told the people what I had done, but only after I had given them a warning that they were not allowed to move until the sermon was completed. You would not believe the reaction. I have never seen people fidget so much in in the process of a sermon. And they listened to every word, hoping that it would be amen, so that they could start searching. And and so finally, I I finished, and, and I gave the benediction, and it seemed like the entire congregation dropped to their knees. You know, as they, as they, as they went to search under. And not only were all of the rings found, we also discovered how much gum had been chewed in the church over the years. Now, now that, that, that's the product of a diligent search. But imagine this. It's one thing to find a plastic jewel. Finding a treasure of intrinsic value. How valuable is that? After I did that a little episode, our music director, Roger Gross, told me a wonderful story. He said, apparently, 
his real estate agent had a family who were selling their house. And, 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 and right before the sale, the woman was in the, the living room. They were getting everything ready for an open house for, for buyers to come in. And, and her wedding ring fell off and it bounced and it disappeared. And even in the midst of an open house, they were searching and searching, lights and action, but no ring. And, and they ended up selling the house. But, 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 but even as they sold the house and got ready to move, they kept the search. And, and an empty room, and even as they left, that ring then was left on her mind because she never found it. And years went by. But the ring was always on her mind. It almost sounds like the Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? My precious, my precious... After a couple of years, the woman saw that the house that they had sold was up for sale once again. And so one night, she relived that experience in a dream. And in her dream, she actually saw the ring slip from her finger, bounce off the carpet and into the hem of the front window curtain. So when she woke, immediately, she called the real estate agent. She asked, could she see the house? Could she, you know, get in there? And so the real estate agent, thinking that there was a sale open, opened the door for her. And the woman walked right into the living room, reached down to the hem of the curtain, and there it was. The ring had been found. (laughs) Imagine the response. Look at verse 9. And when she finds it. She calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost coin! In the same way, Jesus says, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. (laughs) I love the way one writer has put it. When the lost are found, the angels are given cause to ring the bells of heaven and fill God's creation with enough laughter to send the stars shooting into space. (laughs) Imagine a party quite like that. That's what flows out of the heart of God because of you. (laughs) Now, I know that some may think, wait, the heart of God? It just says here angels. Only angels are made happy by this. (laughs) No, 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 no. In the Jewish mind, to mention God's name was considered disrespectful, so humble words were often used to describe God's heart. And so we read in the book of Psalms, the heavens rejoice, or we also now read here, the angels rejoice. It all happens as a reflection of God himself being moved at heart. And at his command, the party erupts, all because the one who was lost is now found. But there's one final twist to the story. Jesus brings a story home into human terms, and, and the cause of rejoicing is not that a sinner is found, but that a sinner repents. Do you see that? In verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And here is where the story of the coin gets very, very personal and very real. You see, you and I are not just lumps of metal or pieces of gems like coins or jewels. We are individuals. And we are possessed of a free will. And we are capable of making decisions. And we are given an ability to respond and to decide and to express. And Jesus may be searching you out, but the final step is really up to you. You must want 
to be found. And how do you do that? This is repentance. Where you say, I was lost, but now I'm found. Jesus sought me, and now I surrender. I turn away from my own path of sin in order to be able to be taken by the hand of Jesus Christ. The journey of Jesus' search took him to the cross and through the grave and steadily over time and space has you in his crosshairs. The question is, will you be taken? Will you be found? And will you give yourself to him? That's repentance. And when that happens, and each time as you surrender to it, a party begins and the stars sparkle and shine and the angels laugh out loud, glory to God in the highest. <laughs> now I know how this must sound. There may be, this may sound like something that needs to be said to someone who has never for the first time ever surrendered to Jesus Christ. And to many of us, we might be tempted to think, well, that is really good for them. But it doesn't really apply to me. May I be so bold as to say, au contraire, once again. Because you see, when Jesus told this parable, he meant, for those who, he meant it for those who needed it to hear it because, because they had discovered that they were wandering and that they were lost. But he also told it to those who already saw themselves as being found. And I have to think that even those who surrendered to Christ at the very beginning do, in fact, need to live a life of complete surrender each and every day. It's the sort of principle that we read about in 1 John chapter 1 where we say to ourselves, if we have no sin, but it is a lie and the truth is not in us, we are prone to wander. But if we confess our sins and repent, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Dare I say that every single one of us in this sanctuary need to be found daily by the one who loves us and cares for us. (laughs) Just this week I read of something that happened in Iceland. I believe it was last year. During a tour, a bus excursion to a volcanic canyon a woman was reported missing when she failed to return to the bus. The bus driver had waited an hour before notifying the police, and soon search and rescue teams, even a helicopter, arrived to search for the missing woman. About 50 people volunteered to search by foot, including all of the rest of the tourists on the bus. About 12 hours into the search, the search was called off when the authorities discovered that the missing woman really wasn't missing at all. She was actually on the bus and had actually even been part of the search party. Apparently, before re-entering the bus, after the stop to tour the canyon, she had changed her clothes and freshened up. And no one, not the bus driver, the tour guide, or the other passengers, even recognized her. It wasn't until hour after hours of searching that the woman suddenly recognized the description of herself. And she realized that she was lost. As silly, I know, but I wonder how many of us realize that we are not only to be found, but we are to be kept by Jesus Christ. And for that, daily surrender to him and repentance. 
and then willingly and obediently and joyfully give ourselves to Him over and over and over again and with each prayer and in each day give the angels a reason to throw a party. <laughs> As I was driving in this morning, I, I had some fresh memories just from this week. My, my grandchildren are of that age where one of their favorite games when they come and visit at our house is uh, uh, um, hide-and-seek. But I began to realize that, no, actually, the name is for the, uh, for the game that they're playing is Come and Find. Because they go when they find places, and then they start calling out, Pop-Ups, I'm here. Come and get me. <laughs> I mean, no matter how hard they try to try hide, they can't, they, they can't let themselves get away with it. I'm over here. Come, get me. Come and find. It is so precious. Because what it speaks is of a joy in their heart that comes into the relationship that we share. And I have to think that, that our prayers each and every day reflect the joy of that relationship. Yes, for some within the sanctuary, that may be something for you to do for the very first time, realizing that Jesus Christ has been on the lookout for you. And he's turned the heavens and the earth upside down. He even broke open the grave in order to find you. And it's up to you right now to say, I'm found. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Lord Jesus, take me now. But that same principle and rule is our daily life. Lord Jesus, come find me. I, I, I repent of the fact that I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. Here I am. Come take and seal it. Seal me by your precious love. Would you pray with me? And gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this vision and for, and that, that, that we know just where we fit in your divine plan. It is not in some section of the universe, but it is at the center of your heart. That having made us, you know us and you love us. And, 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 and yet, having broken away from you and, and, and having sin stand between us, you have set that aside through Jesus Christ to come and get us. Come and get us. Come and get me. My heart is turned to you, Lord. And out loud I repent that, 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 that my face has been turned away, but now I turn to you. And Lord, come and get me. I am yours now and forevermore. Amen.